Welcome to the Cultural Cultivators podcast, hosted by me, Nicole Salver, by Belay Creative and Cultivate Labs, where we explore the diverse and dynamic world of Filipino-American culture. In each episode, we delve into various aspects of Philam culture and speak with entrepreneurs, leaders, artists, and creators who are shaping and pushing the boundaries of their respective fields. Our goal is to not only showcase the richness and diversity of our culture, but also foster a deeper understanding and appreciation of the ways in which these cultivators shape our world. Join us in this exciting journey as we explore the cultural landscape and cultivate a greater appreciation for the beauty and complexity of the Philam experience. Follow us on all social media platforms at Belay Creative or Cultivate Labs, both with a K. Dr. Allison Sintiaku Kubalus is an educator, author, founder of Panay Panoy Educational Partnerships, PEP, and the creator of Panayism, a radical Panay sisterhood. Currently, she is an ethnic studies consultant and co-founder of Community Responsive Education, CRE. In our conversation, she talks about the role of individuals in the larger context of community. Even Maslow's hierarchy of needs in 1940, at the very top of his pyramid, he had the word self-actualization. What people don't know, a lot of people don't know, is that he got that idea of self-actualization, that pyramid, from the Blackfoot Nation. What's interesting about their pyramid, or they would say TP, is at the very top of theirs was not self-actualization. It was community actualization. Self-actualization was at the bottom of their pyramid. I do believe that people need to care for themselves. People need, you know, to be self-actualized. But the larger purpose of that is community actualization. And at the very, very top of the Blackfoot Nation's pyramid is this idea of cultural perpetuity, that we contribute to hopefully a positive culture that we all are participate in. I really wanted this first episode to lay a foundation for cultural cultivators. So I personally chose Dr. Tintiaku Kubales, not only because she's an important scholar for the Filipino-American community, but also because she has been an integral part in my own artistic life. She was one of the first female Filipino-American lit teachers at SF State. And I actually had the privilege of taking her class in college as a sophomore and I was one of her very first students. I remember specifically a year before taking her class, one of my broadcast journalism professors told me that I could not choose Asian Americans in Hollywood as my final project because there weren't any notable Asian Americans in Hollywood. This was in 2000. Granted, we had Lucy Liu, we had a whole bunch of Asian American, Michelle Yao. But this woman, this Caucasian woman had the audacity to tell me we weren't enough. I felt devastated when she told me that. But it was because of Dr. Tintianku Cabales that I finally felt validated in my experience, not only as an Asian American writer, but a Filipino-American creative. It was because of Dr. Tintianku Kubales and her teachings that I finally got to see firsthand how other Filipino-American artists were thriving and producing their art since the 1940s. Her class was like a mirror for me. It was like water. For an emerging artist, an actor, and writer, it was refreshing, it was giving me life, and Ate Allison had a profound impact on me as a young college student at SF State. You can find Dr. Tintiaku Kubales on Instagram at Panayism and visit her website at panayism.com. I am privileged and honored to share with you listeners, Dr. Tintiaku Kubales. Welcome to our podcast, Ate. I won't forever call you Ate, <laughs> but for those 
who are not familiar with my Ate, she is the educator, author, founder of Panay Panoy Educational Partnerships, PEP, and the creator of Panayism, a radical Panay sisterhood. Currently, she's an ethnic studies consultant and co-founder of Community Responsive Education. This is Alison Tidyanko Kubales. Welcome, Ate. Thanks for inviting me, Nicole. It's nice to be on this podcast with you. Thank you for coming. This is our first episode. I'm super stoked and excited to have you. But before we dig and get into it, I wanted to ask, are there any ancestors you want to call into this conversation? I love bringing in our ancestors. It really is about the paths that they paved for us and the lives they led before us. I'll bring in a few. Is that okay? Of course. <laughs> I'll start with my Inai. My Inai passed away a few years ago, actually the first year of the pandemic. I mean, she passed away. She was 101 years old. We called her Inai, which means mom. Uh, her nickname was Pinai. Her name was Agrippina Mendoza Gose. And her nickname was Pinai, which is how I identify myself. My grandmother lost her husband very young, but raised a village, including her own children, one of which is my mom. And I'll bring in two more. A lot of people associate me with Dr. Don Buhulano Mabalan. So she's the second ancestor I'd like to bring in. She passed away in 2018, and it was a devastating loss for our, our community and for me and my family. Don was the premier Filipino, Filipino, Filipinex American historian, also a community activist, comedian, <laughs> and really my best friend. The third ancestor that I'd like to bring in is Dr. Wendell Pasquale. I have the honor of calling him doctor because we gave him an honorary degree last year after he passed. Wendell Pasquale was an amazing artist, DJ, philosopher, and really amazing friend. And so I uh, want to acknowledge all of them as being my ancestors. Thank you, Ate. And for those that are still new to their decolonizing journey or re-Indigenous roots, why do you think it's so significant that we do this practice of calling in our ancestors? I believe that we don't lose communication with our ancestors, even if they've passed away. I feel like it's also important to acknowledge the things that they've done so that we could do the things we do. This is a decolonizing practice because colonialism has oftentimes led us to believe that all of our accomplishments and all of our world that we live in now is about only about us. But it really is about, you know, our ancestors, our descendants. And, and making that connection is really important in this process, acknowledging that they're still here. And since I uh, had to do it, I want to ask you if there's an ancestor that you'd like to bring into this conversation. Yes, thank you, Ate. You know, as you were speaking, especially about Ate Don and your own grandmother, I also, too, was thinking about my grandmother, Estrella Chavez. So I like to call her into the conversation because she was so inspirational as far as community work and activism in my own family. She came in the 1950s and started her own cultural organization. She worked with the Monongs in the I Hotel to help them all get their visas because a lot of them didn't write English. They spoke English, but didn't write English. And she also drove to Delano several times a year to donate to the Monongs and what she called Dito Larry, Uncle Larry. So she had a friendship with Larry Itliong and so did my grandfather. And I also like to call in Patrick Saliver someone, as you know, who helped with the creation of ethnic studies, which we'll get into deeper later in the conversation, but was also the founding member of PACE at SF State. And someone who I was very close to was like a second father to me. Those are amazing ancestors that you just brought in. Estrella, doesn't that mean star? Yes. Yeah, that's a beautiful name. 
and actually didn't know that much about your grandmother. I know about Patrick Salover, but I didn't know about your grandmother. That's phenomenal. I mean, that's really why we bring in our ancestors because they tell our story. Exactly. Right? Like when you brought in your grandmother and you brought in your uncle, that tells me a great deal about how you became who you became. And I think the pandemic also helped with that, ironically, because we had all that time in shelter in place that I was able to find a lot of my grandmother's letters. Ooh. Back from the 70s, 80s, and 90s, a stack of 100 letters and just reading her life. It was like reading her journal and the accomplishments she did in the Bay Area and San Francisco and the Soma specifically, and also her work with uh, Tito Larry, Uncle Larry, <laughs> and, you know, being witness to so many historical moments for Filipino American history. Yeah, what a trip, you know, like that's important. I hope you write about it and I hope you do something with it. When my grandmother passed, we did a little bit of searching too. And we found some funny things. We found like her half slips. <laughs> we found lots of uh, baño or handkerchiefs, you know. We found some a lot of random stuff, you know. Like what I think is so interesting is how much she kept. Man. You know, like the things that she valued. Because she didn't have a lot of material things, you know, growing up in the Philippines. And then even coming here. You know, like she didn't have a lot of that. And so when I think about like the you know, the things that she kept, they also told stories. They're not necessarily like the letters that you found. They're more like items that then tell you about who she was. I ended up making um, a malong and a malong is like a circular cloth, you know, like the people wear, they carry their laundry in or they do different things with a malong. But I created a malong out of her half slips. <sighs> Oh, wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> and then I ironed on a bunch of the eulogy that I wrote for her. Wow. So it was just this, this beautiful kind of process of grieving and healing for me that was necessary, even though it's unorthodox or it's not something that people would normally do. I did that as part of something that I asked my students to do. You know, I asked oh. them to create malungs out of found material that represent different things in their family's lives. And so I had to do it too. And, and I used her half slips. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I love that idea. I'm going to borrow that idea. Yes, please, please. We could definitely do a workshop of that uh, while I created. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Go invite me. I'll tell stories. <laughs> Speaking of stories, I love that we're paying homage and bringing up Ancestor because a lot of my intention and the reason why I asked you to be our first episode is because this podcast is going to focus on the culture bearers, the innovators, and the Filipino Americans here pushing our culture forward. But I feel like we can't really do that without looking to our past, looking to our ancestors, and looking to those Filipinos and Filipino Americans that came before us, right? Our roots, so to speak. And so I think my very first question to you is, why is it important that the younger generation, you know, the TikTok generation, or even just folks my age are still connected to their roots? Ah, oh, that's a good question. So I see myself as maybe one generation older than you and maybe 10 generations older than TikTok. <laughs> um, I just started actually looking at TikTok. I know I'm behind everybody, but I feel like... I want to answer that in maybe a couple ways. I feel like it's important for anyone to learn their roots. I mean, like some people my age have never had the experience of taking ethnic studies. And so they're still discovering like, what are my roots? The idea of digging into your roots or grabbing something by their root is really, I think, an understanding of your history, your past, even before you were born. So this intergenerational understanding of who you are and how you came to be. Some people would call that epistemology, the study of knowledge. And I appreciate that. I really do believe in that. I also believe that we all enter into understanding our roots differently. I'll speak to who I think the TikTok generation is because I think I have a child 
who we is definitely it? have a child that's part of it. <laughs> is she? I don't. Maybe I'm. She doesn't let me see her TikTok, but I don't see very many TikToks made by my daughter. I do see her on Instagram and other platforms. But I guess yes, she's part of the TikTok generation, meaning that TikTok has become a bit of an encyclopedia. It's a worldwide web in some cases. I feel like even my husband, he sends me a bunch of TikToks about things that he's learning and I'm like, wow. So maybe he's part of the TikTok generation. <laughs> but I think that if you're talking about the younger generation, I feel like that they're better off than I was. Eh. Part of that means access to information. Like they have so much access to information. Like all I had were these tore up... <laughs> encyclopedias that my mom would like buy at the like different places like sometimes they would come to the door you know like and have like these sets of encyclopedias that like they would sell and my mom would buy some and then also in some cases she would save up to get the updated version right but what's so interesting in those encyclopedias was that if you looked up Philippines or Filipino there was really only one entry the Republic of the Philippines, right? And so to me, that was the only thing I had to really, I mean, at least in print, to really understand what are my roots. But what's so interesting, you know, is that, you know, many, many years, obviously decades later, you can find out about what it means to be Filipino on TikTok. Yeah. And not to say everything's correct. I mean, you know, there's some things that need to be fixed and edited and people say some silly stuff that maybe causes us to think of essential ways of being Filipino. But I do believe that this generation has more access to information about their roots and their identity than I had and maybe even you had. It's like they have a wealth of information and things that I just didn't have. And so... I do believe that they should be connected to the roots, but I actually think that they have more to their fingertips than we did, which sometimes people may see as like they can easily take it for granted or they can really allow that to shape who they become. I'm hoping it shapes who they become. Speaking of <laughs> who we are becoming, and I think a lot of who I am is because of you. No. Oh. <laughs> You know, I met you at a very integral part of my life, stage of my life, you know, college student, just starting out in ethnic studies, knowing my roots in a sense of being proud of the things that my family has done, not only in the Bay Area, but just here in America, and really understanding the importance of Filipino-American history as part of American history and that impact it has not just here in Bay Area, but all over, right, for Filipinos. My next question for you is for someone who's been so ingrained in the educational system and also Filipino-American history just as a whole, how do you think that impacts our current community and its future? First, thank you. Do you remember what year you came to SF State? 1999. <laughs> I'm totally aging wise. The what? late 1900s, as the kids these days would say. Wow. I didn't realize how young you were. <laughs> I mean, old, but you know. Um, <laughs> so, Nicole, you were one of my very first students at San Francisco State. I started there as a professor in the year 2000. That's 23 years ago that you were my student. Yeah. 23 years. <laughs> I could have a 23-year-old right now. <laughs> oh, well, let's not hope for those things right now. <laughs> I could have too, but I don't. So we both didn't have children back then. And I'm just kind of going down memory lane, you know, and thinking about 23 years ago when I started at San Francisco State, what it must have meant to the students I was young. I was still in my 20s when I was teaching. A tenure-track professor in my late 20s. Imagine that. I used to lie to students and tell them I was in my 30s. I don't know if you remember that. But I do. I do. I don't remember that. And I mean, we all, 
idolized you. <laughs> oh, that I don't know about idolizing. It's funny. Um, now that I think about it, like what it must have meant, right, to all of you to see a young Pinai professor. And I think at that moment, it was the other way around. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I have so many Filipino students. I had the dream job, you know? And I'm not saying it was perfect. I just had the dream job. I had the dream job of being a Pinai professor in front of Filipino students. I mean, most of my classes were like in the, you know, like 90% Filipino, right? If not 100% Asian American, you know, like, so I was really uh, in a place where there was potential impact, right? Of, on me and then also on the students. And then the other classes that I taught were women of color. So like the large majority of my students were women of color, right? Like these were like very, very important spaces for me to grow up as an educator, but then also for the students to be able to see someone who looked like them. I recognize that. There's also a ton of pressure being that person and not to fuck up. And I think that that actually put a lot of pressure on me in ways that were stressful. And I think... A lot of people also didn't want me to mess up, right? You know, like, because it's really important, you know, for the professor who looks like you not to dehumanize you, not to mistreat you. And I have seen colleagues or people who are Filipino mistreat some students. It's never good to mistreat students. And so back then, you know, being the Pinai professor in front of Filipino students also meant that I needed to model things. And when I mean model things, I mean model critical thinking, model a radical thinking, model for all of you how to treat people, you know, like how to be empathetic, which also meant that at times, you know, I would have to change my grading system, right? Or I had to like be a lot more flexible about, you know, like students' situations, you know, like I wanted to model for students that they didn't have to have a teacher who didn't see them. I wanted to make sure my students were heard and seen. I'm hoping that that had an impact on your generation and any of the students that I've had. How does that impact an entire future? I really hope that students that were in my classes got to learn a bit about themselves, if not a lot about themselves, got to learn how they can make an impact in the world and that they find ways to seek joy that doesn't harm other people. If I did that, that's cool. Learning Filipino American history and culture, cool too. <laughs> but like, I think as an educator, those things concern me, you know, like, and I want to make sure that, yes, I want them to learn specific things about our history, about our past, about our legacies. But I want them to learn that because I want them to be able to see how they can shape themselves. And you did that 100%. I remember the books that you assign us, the videos you would show impacted me so much that growing up, as a teenager, you know, from very sort of strict grandparents telling me being an artist is not possible, yeah. you know, be a nurse, to going to your class and seeing, no, actually there are Filipino-American artists, there are Filipino-American writers, Jessica Hagedorn, and seeing that possibility sparked something within me to believe in myself. I'm so glad because I think about when I was in college that I had to make a choice between being an artist or an activist. That was what one white male professor said to me when he was my dance professor. And he was like, you have to choose, you know, because your activism is messing up your artistry. Ah. And I basically told him to fuck off, you know, <laughs> like, and I dropped the major, I dropped the dance major. And I think about how he was detrimental to my growth as an artist. Yeah. But because of that situation, I promise that I would never do that to you all. I would never make students choose between being a nurse and being an artist. You know, I would never make students choose between their activism and their academics. You know, like to me, all of those things can happen. You know, like, and I feel like it's not fair. Even with my own child who is an artist, I feel like really important for her to know, you know, like that she can be a multitude of things. All of those things can exist in one person. Absolutely. <laughs> and they do. And they they do. do. In Mahalaya, they, they really do uh, exist in one person. What I've learned recently is that my activism can and be 
beautifully reflected in my art. Yeah, that's called artivism. Yes, I'm 100% an artivist. You know, I came up with that word in the 1990s. <laughs> you did? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, okay, I don't actually know if I was the person, but I, I, that was the first time I had heard it. And my cousin Glenda Makatangai, she had a, a clothing line called Cocoa or Conscious Clothing. And she made t-shirts that said artivist. And I really, really felt like the concept of being an artivist was huge. A lot of it had to be rooted in that professor telling me that I couldn't. Yeah. And so I came up with that concept really to push that. So that was before I got to SF State. And then I see it used all the time now. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if people know, you know, that oh, there's a history. <laughs> I'm going to start using you as the resource for that. <laughs> I don't have evidence except that there was T-shirts that I helped. <laughs> now we have it here on our podcast. This is the evidence. Okay, what else did we coin, Nicole? <laughs> One of the terms you coined was panayism. Yeah, that was, oh my gosh, 19, I think it was actually coined in like 1993, but published in 1995 in Pinai Power. Yeah, so it was actually first conceptualized when I was doing an article for Maganda Magazine, uh -huh. where I was one of the editors back in the day. I really wanted to develop something that represented a Filipina feminism, a very Filipina-focused feminism. And I did this whole autoethnography at the mall. Or actually, it was more like, yeah, I guess it was autoethnography. And yeah, I got totally shut down several times and got even dogged by some Pinais at the mall. And that pushed me to create something with a bunch of activist friends. And I named it Pinaiism this radical sisterhood that I live by, I still live by. I'm not the only one who has contributed to the development of Pinaism after, you know, like how many years? That's like, it's a long time now. It's almost 30 years. <laughs> you know, like it has it, definitely shifted. Josil Sacramento is one of the most important thinkers around Pinaism. I've been fortunate to co-write a couple of things with her. We actually have a piece, one of the... Um, I guess, introductions to the book Closer to Liberation. Wow. We reconceptualize Pinaism. I hope people check that out. And the focus of that piece is about self-love, about shape-shifting, like wow. the Aswang, and solidarity. And so Pinaism has really grown. I mean, I'm really proud to say that I coined it, but I'm definitely not the only person who contributed to its development. And I love that about Pinaiism. It's really been shaped by Pinais all over the world. So yeah. it's wonderful. It's that wonderful community, right, that we partake in. It's like a mirror. I feel like community is healing. It can be a mirror and it could show us the aspects of ourselves that are powerful and the aspects of ourselves that still need work. <laughs> There's always things that need work. Yeah. <laughs> very true. Very true. I kind of wanted to ask you, because community is such an important part of the work that you do, not only for, you know, Filipino Americans, but now ethnic studies, the ethnic studies programs. I want to get into this whole idea about community. But first, I wanted to ask, what is your why? What is what is the purpose that's driving you do so many beautiful things for Filipino Americans, for ethnic studies, for the youth. What is the why that drives you, Ate? You know, I ask students this all the time. What's your purpose? What's your why? I think that that's one of the questions that really I start with with students because sometimes as educators, we think we know the why for our students. And so I really try to pull back a little bit and ask that question. But it is so different being asked the question. <laughs> So I really appreciate the chance to talk about my why. I'll talk about it in two ways, in a conceptual way. Like if you ask me, what is your why, Allison? I would say collective liberation. Every single thing I do. And I do a lot of diverse things. I think people go, how and what? And how did you end up doing that and that? I take on things that are meaningful to collective liberation. Every single thing. In a collective, there's people. And so my why is really about the people. 
And sometimes that means an individual. And sometimes that means a bunch of people, (laughs) you know? There's this really beautiful indigenous concept, particularly popularized as being Iroquois. And there's other sort of versions of this, even a Filipino version or thinking around this. But we as individuals represent seven generations before us. And we then need to work for the seven generations in front of us. And so for me, when I think of my why, and I'm defining the concept of collective liberation, the idea of being collective doesn't just mean like an organization. It doesn't necessarily just mean a specific community. It really is connected to our ancestors and our descendants. And this idea of being collective really means thinking about how do we get to a place of liberation that doesn't harm other people. I think sometimes we want power. And I actually think that power doesn't have to be problematic. (laughs) But sometimes if we don't consider how our power may harm people, then that power becomes oppressive when we don't even know it is. And so collective liberation is really, you know, like to think about this idea that we are a large collective, both, you know, our ancestors, our descendants, and our current peoples. And pretty much when I say collective, I mean all relations. I think that's very huge and broad. Of course, I do some work that's very, very specific to particular communities. But I really want to sort of pay close attention to what we mean by liberation. And that seven generations before us fought for this liberation, including your grandmother, your uncle, my grandmother. It may not look the same, right? But they fought for us to be able to be free. And then our goal is to really continue to create a better situation for the generations in front of us. Ideally, that situation is a situation that centers liberation. That was a bit abstract, but I hope that it was answering the question of the why. Yeah, I can't think of the why or why I do the work without thinking about who I do the work for. And so I hope that that made sense. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. You know, and I think Filipino-Americans, especially here in the Bay Area, have this long history of resisting oppressive systems and structures and not just resisting, but being successful in bringing opportunities and liberating the collective in different ways. One of them being the start of the ethnic studies program and opening the admissions to other people of color at SF State. And when I tell people this, it blows their mind, but before the creation of ethnic studies in the 1960s, late 1960s, only a certain amount of people of color could attend SF State. They capped it. And then when the Third Liberation Front fought for those rights and the ethnic studies program, then they opened it up to more people of color. So I think when you talk about that liberation and fighting for it, you know, freedom, that's exactly, those are the exact samples and examples of what that means to be free. I think a lot of folks, especially the younger generation, don't realize and understand how oppressive it was just like 40, 50 years ago within a lifetime of my mother, how opportunities that they have now were actually fought for by people like my uncle, literally with their own physical bodies. I think it's always good to remind people, even of my generation, you know, like that they are benefactors of the ancestors' hard work, their activism. They experienced severe violence, mm-hmm. attacks. They put their bodies on the line. The Black Student Union, along with the Third World Liberation Front, really, really pushed to change education. I mean, we really know education now is a result of that. Even though we have more, you know, policies coming up now, it's all rooted in the Third World Liberation Front and that work, that coalition, that student strike. Of course, before that, 
it's not like activism wasn't happening. There was a ton of different things happening in the communities, anti-war protests. Yeah. People were pushing all kinds of things, you know. Mm-hmm. They were really pushing up systems that have been oppressive for generations. Exactly. Ethnic studies came at a time where it was like the height of it. And that movement, I mean, we really do owe a lot to that movement. Sometimes it is disheartening, you know, to see how ethnic studies has been watered down or manipulated or treated in a way that it doesn't have that radical history because it does. I think people need to know that it came from a social movement and it came from the community and it came to fight for access, like you said, access to education, a relevant education. And it was always about community, always. It was the bridge between institutions and the community. If those things are not part of what we do moving forward, then it's not ethnic studies. You know, I think that we really have to come to terms with that. Like I think about how, you know, what they fought for and all the different things and how it was connected to all the other movements, the power movements, you know, at that time, black power, yellow power, red power, brown power, like all of those movements shaped how we understand ethnic studies. And those particular communities should also be honored in ethnic studies. Yes. They fought for it because they didn't see themselves in education. So we really need to consider that ethnic studies has to be about those communities, the communities that have been marginalized from education. Yes. And then the big thing that people, I think, miss when they're thinking about ethnic studies is that ethnic studies, the curriculum, the teaching has to really put at the center of it, eradicating racism. Yeah. We need just to be direct about that. I think that sometimes people go around it and try to soften it yeah. and to make people feel good. Yeah. But at the end of the day, we have to eradicate racism. Yep. And that also means that communities of color have to attend with the racism that they also ensue. Mm. So I think that we have to really think about that. And the prejudice. Yes. We have to get into that when we're talking about ethnic studies. Although I do love, you know, all the work that we're doing in terms of developing our identities, which is very key, part of developing our identities is also creating that lens to be able to be critical about the systems that have been oppressive to our communities for generations. Exactly. And that's why I feel like the work that I do as far as an artist and putting so much time and energy into my first screenplay, being about the Third World Liberation Front, being about my uncle and his sacrifice for for this generation and generations after him is that they so beautifully showed us that solidarity within races <laughs> to fight white supremacy is possible. I 100% agree. I'm really excited about this screenplay. <laughs> I can't wait. I mean, I can't wait for it to be out into the world, but I also can't wait to teach it. I think one thing that I really heard you say, and you said it a few times, is you use the word they. And I absolutely want to think about that generation as being they. But then I also want to think about, I mean, meaning they, meaning a lot of people contributed you know, to the development of this, right? But I also want to make the connection between they and us because we didn't stop fighting uh-huh. for ethnic studies. They started the fight and we have continued the fight. And till this day are continuing the fight. And I'm not sure if you know, but I've been attacked. I've been misquoted. (laughs) I've been villainized, you know, like in a lot of the current work, along with some of my colleagues, especially those who associate themselves with liberated ethnic studies. There's no need for liberated ethnic studies if people didn't try to manipulate what ethnic studies was, eh. you know, like, and so that particular group, the reason why they're called liberated is to really distinguish, you know, like the watered down ethnic studies from, you know, the liberated ethnic studies and we're being attacked, you know, like there's a lot of different policies that have been put into play, as you probably know, to attack what is being taught in school, you know, and it is really disheartening to see what's happening. But that doesn't mean that we stop. Exactly. We absolutely continue the work. Yeah. And I don't take those attacks into my body. I mean, don't get me wrong. 
when I see my name in the media or someone sends me an email or a text saying, hey, you know, they're saying this about you. It bothers me. It hurts me, but not for very long, because what that tells me is that we're doing work that is threatening to people's power. It's threatening the system that was put in place. Exactly like what they did with my uncle, with the people in power, you know, did to the revolutionaries. And it's like history repeating itself. Absolutely. They can't physically attack you, so they're trying to attack your name. Discredit. Yep. And the most important thing, and I know sometimes it's hard for people, and it is hard for me as well, you know, like even this week, I experienced a couple of new articles that came out that just were like so frustrating. But what I'd like to tell people, you know, um, is we're organizing. Eh. Get with the people who are organizing so that you don't feel alone when you're being attacked. Also, don't let the attacks enter into your body eh. because then that stress and will impact your ability to fight against them. And so I just want to encourage that. I mean, it's easy to say it, but not easy to do. And I think it's really important for people to consider, you know, like to really analyze those attacks as meaning that you have a power that people are really scared of. Yeah, exactly. What are ways you or tools that you use so that those attacks don't, like you said, enter your body and manipulate you and back into fear? I like to talk to trusted people. <laughs> also like to organize with people who are like-minded, who have the same values around ethnic studies. I also bring in legal <laughs> and just have to take care of ourselves, you know, like, and then also be very mindful about the kinds of interactions that we have with people. If they feel harmful, then it's okay to disengage. It's okay to say, no, I, I would not like to talk to you or... You know, I've been told by some folks, legal counsel, that I don't necessarily have to respond to media requests. I'm, of course, interviewing and doing this podcast with you because I love you and we have this trusting relationship. But that doesn't mean that I would just do any podcast with anyone because I don't want to put myself and my family and my community in danger. Yeah, boundaries, healthy boundaries. And we appreciate you, Ate. We appreciate your time and your energy and your knowledge, especially in your wisdom. And being here today on our podcast, this is a gift. This is really a gift. This is an honor. I see this as a blessing. I mean, imagine you're my student 23 years ago and here you are like on a podcast doing this amazing work in this community and being rooted and grounded in our legacies. I mean, this is a dream. This is what we wanted 23 years ago. This is what I wanted 23 years ago. <laughs> No, honestly, being a mother now, this is a dream job. What I get to do for Filipino-American, Philippine X and Filipino artists here in the Bay Area and hopefully beyond is literally what I've been wanting to manifest for the past 25 years with my artistry. And now I'm getting, I'm getting paid to do this, getting paid to support Filipino artists, getting paid to fight white supremacy <laughs> with our joy and our talent and our skills and pushing back against systems, like you said, to help liberate people, liberate, you know, our art. Well, you're getting paid tax money. Yeah. <laughs> true. Let's be real. Yeah. Like you're funded, you know, like by money that is from your people. Yeah. You know, like, and we'd rather be paying for people to do what you're doing, you know, than some other <laughs> not so productive things, you know, in our life. So I appreciate that. And you should be getting paid to do this work. Thank you, Ate. I do want to ask and follow up on the, we talk so much about community, right? And I feel like I hear this word now being part of Cultivate Labs and Belay Creative, community, community, community. But in a society that really appreciates individualism, how do you deal with folks in the community that sort of insert themselves just for like the social media clout, right? How do you approach that? And how can folks who may not even be aware that they do it, how can we grow in a good way as a community, building and growing together versus just sort of inserting ourselves at events, taking from the community and then leaving? <laughs> 
Oh, that's a good one. We need another hour for that. <laughs> that's its own podcast uh, to just talk about community and actually individualism. You know, like that's a big thing. I'll do like a little bit right now, but I, I feel like you need to like have one interview with somebody to just dig it in, dig in, dig in, right? Community is a funny word because like people use it and you don't know exactly what they're referring to or they use it one way. Like I'll say, oh, I'm part of the Filipino community. I'm part of the Excelsior community. I'm part of the, you know, Bay Area community. I'm part of, you know, like PEP, which is a community. I'm part of the Pinai community, you know, or some people will think of community as their politics. You know, I'm part of the radical community. I'm part of the democratic community. So I think the word community is used in so many different ways and you can't really go wrong using it. And I think that even if you can't go wrong using it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we all imagine community as operating the same way. Individualism is a funny concept too, because I feel like individualism is how we measure success in this world. Um, grades, test scores, how much money you make, all of those things define success, which is actually very problematic. Those are all measurements based on individual success. Even Maslow's hierarchy of needs in 1940, at the very top of his pyramid, he had the word self-actualization. So your success is self-actualization, self. What people don't know, a lot of people don't know, is that he got that idea of self-actualization, that pyramid, from the Blackfoot Nation, which is an indigenous group, right? So what's interesting about their pyramid, or they would say TP, is at the very top of theirs was not self-actualization. It was community actualization. Self-actualization was at the bottom of their pyramid. Yeah, so that to me is very interesting. Like this idea of community, yes, I do believe that people need to care for themselves. People need, you know, to be self-actualized. But the larger purpose of that is community actualization. And at the very, very top of the Blackfoot Nation's pyramid is this idea of cultural perpetuity, that we contribute to hopefully a positive culture that we all are participate in. And so interesting about community, there's been a lot of challenges, you know, like in us understanding what community means. And I feel like you kind of mentioned it before, like sometimes people are just there like for themselves, you know. I feel like some of that remnants of when people like are doing things for themselves and just trying to get likes, all of that is rooted in capitalism. And I think that those are the oppressive parts of capitalism, you know, like that I think have made it very difficult for us to really be genuinely empathetic towards each other. It makes it really difficult for us to see ourselves in each other. And so I feel like the challenge with community is people using community for personal gain versus learning to be self-actualized so that you can contribute and support your community. Very, very different model of thinking. I think people make the mistake. They're like, oh, look at all the community work I do and want the likes for themselves versus I want to use my personal power, my personal growth to actually shape the actualization of my community. And I think that it's a matter of kind of shifting the thinking around I need to become a leader. I need to become an individual who really has my own power. Absolutely. But where do you use that power? To gain more power for yourself? Or do you use that power to actually, you know, like benefit your community? And so to me, I think that there are possibilities to make that shift. But I think people need to really interrogate why they do what they do. Yeah. <laughs> I think I answered a lot of questions in one. I hope that that was thoughtful. I hope that makes a hundred percent. No, I love, I love that explanation and bringing up that triangle. This is when I wish we were recording video and we could have a good deck of what you're talking about. But yes, a hundred percent. It ties back into our whys, right? And our personal intentions with why we do the work that we do. And I've felt this ever since I was a little girl, 
like it was this calling that I wanted to help make the world a better place. And now it's like, oh, that is now down to my community. And like you said, pushing our culture forward, liberated freedom. You know, Dr. Thera Pinai, <laughs> she has the Instagram, right? And more recently I was scrolling and I saw that she had these diagrams that described self-care and community care. And what I loved about what she was trying to say was that they don't need to be mutually exclusive. I think at times we have a tendency to lean into one more than the other, but what we really need to find is that nexus that allows us to care for ourselves, allows us to love ourselves, and then also allows us to love our community. I think we need to really find that really nice nexus. I don't believe in self-sacrifice. I used to, <laughs> I should be real. I used to believe in that, but I don't believe that that's what's needed, you know, for us to thrive. I don't believe that, you know, you need to be, what's the word? Yeah, self-sacrificing. Um, struggle. I believe in some struggle. We got to struggle, right? That's different. I'm saying when you completely like disregard yourself, uh, mm -hmm. you know, like, or where you feel like selfless. Mm. I am not that kind of mother. Best believe, I definitely sacrifice for my kid. I do a lot of stuff for my child. I, I mean, Mahalaya can attest to that. But am I selfless? Absolutely not. I don't want to model that for my child. Yeah. I don't want to model for her that, you know, like you have to give up everything for your children. No, I don't believe that. I really believe that you have to care for yourself so that children can learn how to care for themselves. So that they can see you thriving. So that they can see you loving yourself. So that they never have to question whether or not they should love themselves and that that is selfish. I am not one of those mothers that is selfless, nor am I one of those community members or educators that's selfless. I love my life. <laughs> I love to enjoy myself. Yes. I'm not saying I'm perfect. I'm not like super healthy right now. I would love to be more healthy, but I do believe that part of who I am at this moment in my life, you know, in my 50s, is not the same as I was when I was in my 20s or 30s or 40s. Now it's like, look, I got to care for myself so I can live a couple more decades, you know, so that I can see the growth and beauty of the next generation. Yeah. And I think you bring that up so beautifully. And, and that actually was one of my questions in that the generation before us modeled things so differently, right? It was needed to sacrifice all of yourself, mental, physical, emotional, even spiritual, you know, and, and also sort of hand in hand with this like, toxic productivity this this hustle you know in order to be successful and accomplish all these things not only for yourself but for the community as well so I love that you brought that up because I'm that same kind of mother I am not giving up my x y and z for like this is how burnout happens this is how you know psychotic breaks happen because we're not being taught to put ourselves at all in at first. <laughs> it needs to be yeah. other people. It needs to be our community. It needs to be the work. I know we don't have that much time left, but I just want to say that I don't hustle. Yes. I want people to quote me, Allison doesn't hustle. Yes. One, I think hustle is a funny word because it has racial connotations that don't really align with my ideology. I don't see myself and my work that I do as hustling. I do want to say that almost everything that I do is not done alone. And I mean that. I know some people say that, but I mean that. Like I deliberately take on projects that I know are aligned with my why, but I also deliberately take on projects knowing that I'm going to bring in some people that I love and trust to work with. Like I curate my life that way. Like I work with what, who I want to work with. I do what I want to do because I know that if I don't do that, if I don't really think clearly about like how it's aligned with my why, 
then I'm going to just be doing random stuff and I would be just doing it for the money or I would just be doing it for clout, like you said earlier. And that's not helpful. That's not helpful for anyone. And so that's not hustling. You know, actually, it's more like an artist, right? An artist or a curator where we decide, you know, like what gets to be part of our exhibit or our collection. And so I do do a lot of things. Absolutely. I'm not going to try to like, oh, I'm not going to sound like so humble that I don't do all the things that I do. I do a lot of things. I don't do them alone. Never. And I wouldn't take credit for that either. You know, all the things I do, I do with other people who are amazing. You know, like who I have like deep love and trust for. I 100% agree. You know, I think it was five or six years ago. In the middle of my life in New York, I decided I no longer want to hustle. This is exhausting. This is exhausting. And all of that is rooted in capitalism. <laughs> and it's so toxic. And so I did that exact same thing where instead of putting on this mantra of hustle, 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 I started to put on this mantra of alignment. And I am aligning to my purpose and everything that I create or manifest is aligning to my purpose. Every person I choose to work with is in alignment with what I want to create. We make choices about who we work with, but sometimes those choices are wrong. And so you sometimes you don't work with them again. And I, I also want to say that that's all right, because sometimes different value systems or we have different goals and that's all right. I will say, even in my current life, have a couple of situations where I'm still grappling with that, you know, and still grieving some of the challenges and working with people. But I also think that that's part of it. When we really think about what it means, collective liberation doesn't mean we're all going to do the same thing. Yeah. We're all going to have different ways of approaching it. And some of us will be very aligned in our methodology and some of us won't. And we have to be okay with it because it's exhausting to try to make things work that really won't. Mm -hmm. I feel like I might get quoted on that one. <laughs> Allison said, don't do it anymore. <laughs> I feel like the question that you're asking is really important. Like I've been asked many times before, how do you do the work? Or how do you do all the work? Knowing that there is a lot, you know? My answer is always, I don't do it alone. Yeah, I, I think about that. And yes, community, yes, the people we choose to work with, in, in our Kapwa, but also ancestor. I never feel alone in the creative work that I do now because I always have ancestor with me. We always do. We always have our ancestors with us. Don't get me wrong, I miss talking to them, like physically, in the material world. But when I really pause, when I really take the time and sit in my grief, I feel like I'm literally in front of them, <laughs> like sharing what's going on with me today. And I feel like if I pause to really allow myself to hear them, then I will hear their advice to me. hundred percent. When I am about to write or create something, I always take that time to meditate and pause. And I always feel like I'm able to connect with them more and they're with me, guiding me as I create. I love that. I think that that allows you, you know, that connection beyond the material world. That in itself, you know, is beautiful. And I feel like you need to spend more time doing that. I, I have moments in my creative work. I think beyond my visual or performing arts as my creative work, I also think teaching as an art form and also the consulting I do, you know, to provide people like ways to implement ethnic studies and shape frameworks around ethnic studies. All of that to me is creative work. And so when I really get super busy and I can't think clearly, can I just be real with you? I just take naps and I just allow myself the time to go, okay, what do I really need to be saying at this moment? And there have been magical moments in my creativity because of those naps 
and those times to actually talk to my ancestors. It's a trip. <laughs> I love that you said that because I am literally reading the book Rest as Resistance by uh, Hersey. And she the whole book is about that. Taking naps. She founded the Ministry of Nap. Nap Ministry. I love Nap Ministry. That's another answer to that question. Like, how do you do what you do? Well, I rest. Yeah. I take naps. I spend Sundays and go wine tasting with my husband on the wharf. Yeah. I go visit Mahalaya, you know, like across the nation to watch her dance. I mean, her dancing, you know, really allows me this beautiful process of uh, watching, but it's it's also about how it influences my creativity. Mm. It's wild. I equate it to just watching her breathe when she was a baby. Oh. Like when I when I used to watch her breathe as a child, that shit was like magic. That was like medicine. Yes, and that's what it took for me to really feel confident in being a mother was seeing her breathe. And so it's very similar to when I watch her dance now. I'm like, I think we did all right. <laughs> More than all right, Ate. I I mean, I could talk forever with you. <laughs> But I know John, our editor, is like, when is this going to end? <laughs> I know we didn't get into all of the questions that I wanted to ask you, but I think this conversation was much needed. It was organic and real and all of the things that this podcast is going to be with future guests. And so I just want to ask, you know, what can we expect from you and your creative writing and your creativity and in the community work you do? And how can folks find it? How can folks follow along? How can folks buy your books and watch the documentary that you help produce and make? And what can we look for at day? I think I need to update my website. <laughs> so you can catch me at pinaism.com and I probably need to update it with the multiple things I'm working on. And so just to categorize a little bit, in terms of ethnic studies, I am a consultant and then also an educator. I'm a professor at San Francisco State. You can catch me there at any time you're around. You can email me at my email at San Francisco State. I'm working for multiple schools, districts, and counties and a couple of states. So I'm working at multiple levels to ensure that ethnic studies is genuine and authentic to what our people fought for, what your uncle fought for. So I'm trying my best to ensure that it stays true to that. So there's a, and I won't name all of those places, people could probably find them. So publications, the Journal of Asian American Studies is going to be coming out. The, the new issue is coming out in June, and I'm one of the co-editors. We have a section on ethnic studies, movements, and pedagogy. I think that's going to rock the world. I'm very, very excited about that. I'm also the curriculum advisor of UCLA's Asian American Pacific Islander multimedia textbook. Some of the first chapters will be coming out very soon. And that's going to be huge. It's a beautiful project, a huge project. If anybody's into Newzella or ELA, Newzella ELA, I'm also one of the ethnic studies lead curators for that. There's going to be a new collection of ethnic studies articles that will be coming out for the fall. And then dot, 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 <laughs> lots of things, right, in terms of publications. Most recently, we published the SAGE Encyclopedia of Filipina XO American Studies, there's 350 entries with 300 authors. And I was one of the co-editors with Kevin Nadal and EJR David. We have an amazing cast of advisory board people. And we have some great folks, you know, like who really participated in that series of books. You can have your libraries order them. They're kind of hefty in terms of price, but we're hoping that they'll show up in libraries. And then the last thing I'll just say is that I have this project that, you know, we've been talking about all these things about my past. And one of those things was having that professor make me choose between being an artist or a dancer and being an activist. And I'm so, so thrilled to say that I have a project called Art of Work 
that I am doing with the company, the hip hop group in the Bay Area. And what we do is that we teach them about ethnic studies and labor studies. And they're also going in through this creative process of really trying to find out the labor of dancers, specifically the labor of Philippinex American dancers. And what's beautiful about that is they're going to create movement based on that. They're going to be doing a film that'll be coming out in October. I have two more things. I'm so sorry. The other thing is Larry the Musical. I'm the educational consultant. That's also coming out in October. And then now the last thing. So I participated in producing uh, the documentary. It's, the new title is called A Beautiful Lie. And that's specifically talking about youth wellness and also really looking at what schools have done to youth wellness. So I'm hoping people get a chance to check that out. It's in the film festival circuit, so it'll be in that circuit for about a year, and we're hoping it'll get picked up after that. So we're really excited for that to be in the world. All of the things, all of the things. And like you said, Ate, could not have been done without the beautiful Kapwa community that you align yourself with. So we just want to acknowledge that as well. And we want to also acknowledge the ancestors that we called in earlier in the conversation. And we also, of course, want to just give you all the flowers and the gratitude and the love and the respect because we would not be here right now without you and the work that you do. So thank you so much, Ate. Thank you for being our first official guest and for modeling to us what is possible, what is necessary, what is needed in our culture and community. We love you, Ate. In this conversation, we talk about Dr. Tintianko Kowalis's why, why she does the work she does, and why we as a community get to understand and appreciate ethnic studies and our cultural history. Simply put, collective liberation. Liberation meaning freedom from oppressive forces and even freedom from our own perceived limiting beliefs and patterns of thinking. So as we deepen our own understanding of Filipino-American culture and listen to the folks contributing to it, I really wanted us to take the time for this first episode to hear from Ate Allison and truly understand the importance of knowing our roots and the power of community. As a Zimbabwean proverb says, it is in our roots not the branches that a tree's greatest strength lies. So when we are rooted in our culture, our communities, and in our ancestors, we are so much more stronger, resilient, and powerful beyond belief. The Sage Encyclopedia Filipina, Filipinex, Filipino Studies is available wherever you find books. You can find Dr. Tintiaku Kubales on Instagram at Panayism and visit her website at panayism.com. Cultural Cultivators is hosted by me, Nicole Salver. You can follow me at Kindred Kapwa on Instagram. The podcast is co-produced by John Reyes and Balai Creative, and it is a product of Cultivate Labs. Stay in touch at balaicreative.org. <laughs>